First Peter 1. Still there. And it's been good, hasn't it? God's Word is amazing. And this morning we've got some tough things to talk about. We're going to get through a couple of things that are not fun. Uh, talking about trials, talking about the tribulations, the troubles that we endure in this life. And we're also going to talk a little bit about, about living as a Christian, about having conviction. And uh, some things that are just challenging, some things that are tough to hear sometimes. But we need to hear them, don't we? We need to hear them, we need to talk about them. And uh, so we're going to pick up where we left off in First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Go ahead and read some of these verses, if you'll join me. Starting in verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, uh, it's a challenging passage of scripture uh, to cover. It's a challenging uh, thing to talk about and it's something that's tough. And I pray that you would build us up and encourage us, Lord, that you'd fill us with joy as your word says here as we look to the glorious hope that awaits us. And I pray that you would speak to each heart. Lord, help me uh, to only speak what your Spirit would have me speak. And I thank you, Lord, for the message you have for each of us this morning in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, so, having just left off in the prior verses talking about our inheritance in heaven, our heavenly citizenship, and about how we're not citizens of this earth, are we? We're meant to look for something greater, something better. And so having just talked about that in the prior verses, uh, Peter's picking up where he left off there and, and saying, in this you greatly rejoice. So he's talking about the inheritance that we have in Christ, the good things that we look forward to. And he's really talking about being heavenly minded in the best sense, really placing all of our hope, our joy, our peace in those things and not in things here that change, things that we really can't count on, things that can it's stolen, that can fall apart, can break, can catch fire, uh, all of that stuff, it, it passes away, doesn't it? And so po- Peter just kind of really helped everybody reading his letter to focus in on what's most important, where our stability lies. But now, having talked about that heavenly hope and focus, Peter goes on now to talk about um, how this source of great joy for us, but then he brings it back to focus here on earth, I think is what he's doing now. He's he's kind of bringing it back down to planet earth for a second, uh, to real life. Things that they're in the midst of, things that we're in the midst of right now. And so, in light of the hope that we have, in light of our heavenly citizenship and our inheritance, he's going, okay, now let's just talk about what's going on here. What's happening right now. And he starts to talk about trials, troubles, we don't like that stuff, do we? I don't like that stuff. I don't know about you, but pain hurts me. And I don't enjoy it. But you know what? God's Word has a lot to say about that. And we know that Christ didn't come here for a comfortable life, did He? He didn't come here to seek pleasure and enjoyment 
and store up treasure here on earth. He's not material treasure. Uh, he, he sought us, didn't he? But I like that he starts off here saying, Now though, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. For a little while. You know, and this reminds me of 2 Corinthians 4.16, where it says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. How encouraging is that? And we're reminded throughout Scripture that this is temporary. This is, this is brief in light of eternity. And it doesn't feel like that sometimes, does it? When we're in the midst of the fire and we're in the midst of the trouble and things aren't going right, it feels like forever. When you're sitting in the waiting room at the ER, it feels like three days when it's three hours, doesn't it? It takes a long time. It feels like it. But you know what? He reminds us, in, to put it in perspective, it's a, brief, it's a brief moment in time in light of eternity. One of the things that I don't especially like reading here is that it says, if need be, and one of the things we find when talking about trials and tribulations in Scripture, even Jesus himself in talking about them, is the fact that they're actually kind of necessary for our spiritual growth. They're not just allowed by God. Uh, sometimes they're ordained by God. Remember Job. Uh, whose suggestion was it that Satan checked Job out and give him a hard time? It was God's. How about you? That makes me want to question my father's parenting methods. <laughs> Wait a second here. <laughs> Can you just not notice me for a minute? That's, that's tough. But you know what? God had a great purpose and plan in it, didn't he? And you know what? Job was refined. Uh, Job's faith was tested and proven. And you know what? He was, the, the state of his latter days was far greater and better than those of the former, weren't they? You know, and, and it was tough to see that in the midst of the trial when it comes upon us. But I think we need to take note of these little words where he says, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. You know, these things do have a place in our life. You know, and just like a diamond would not even exist without the immense pressure and heat necessary to create it. You know, our spiritual growth, us being truly, deeply uh, having the character of God and truly, deeply grounded in Him and representing Him well really doesn't happen without a little pressure and heat, without a little bit of trial and trouble. Uh, we truly learn what it is to be partakers of Christ's suffering and to represent Him well. And our faith is like a muscle, we've heard it before, and it doesn't get stronger unless it's exercised. Well, you know, if everything's always cushy and nice, does it really get exercised much? You know, we talked about last week um, some of my visits to China and the underground church there and how it is a little bit different. As a matter of fact, it's a lot different. And in many of the provinces there, it really costs you something to be a Christian. Very practically, it costs you something. Sometimes that just simply means you can't get a job. So how do you provide for your family? How do you provide for yourself? And you literally trust the Lord for every single meal. You know, that's where your faith really puts on walking shoes. It becomes very real. But there's no such thing as a nominal, half-hearted Christian over there because it costs you something. 
And so, in the same way, trials and troubles come about and it forces us off the fence, doesn't it? It forces us to stare truth in the face. It forces us to stare our belief or what we say we believe in the faith, kind of like the Truth Project. One of the quotes I like in there, it says, uh, do you really believe that what you say you believe is really real? And the reason they say that is because if you really do believe it, it's going to show. And when the heat gets turned up, what you're really made of is going to come out. And that's when it comes out. It's not when things are all nice. Hey, anyone can be joyful and be doing great when things are nice, right? But when trials happen, when, when tough times come, that's when people are watching to see how you're going to react. How are you going to endure? Do you really have this hope you say you have? That's where the rubber meets the road. You know, there's kind of, throughout Scripture we see that there's three sort of categories of trouble that we go through on earth. And I thought I'd touch on those real quick to bring them into perspective and, and focus. Um, there's, first of all, there's consequences. Trouble that we bring on ourselves. Anybody have those? I've had those. I think we've all had those. We call those learning experiences, right? We usually gain that good judgment from all the bad judgment that we exercise, right? But, you know, there's, I've heard it said there's three ways, there's three kinds of people, three ways that people learn. There's those that learn by reading and studying about something. There's those that learn by observing others and their experiences. And then there's the rest of us who have to touch the electric fence. You know? <laughs> We got to we got to experience it. We got to go shock ourselves, you know. Uh, but there's those kinds of troubles, and we kind of bring those on ourselves, don't we? But God uses those too. That's the good news: is He can even redeem those things, and He does, and He grows and teaches us. Then there's those things that befall us, uh, as they do everyone from time to time, just because we live here on planet Earth. You know, a car breaks down, we get sick, people die, tough things happen, and it's not really, you know, any explanation for it, any rational reason. But you know what? One thing we do know, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. There will be trouble. Will be, not maybe. There will be. And so we shouldn't be surprised as we read in Paul's letter. But those things just fall on us. They happen. Financial troubles. Some of those things, tempting and testing, that enter our lives. We don't bring it on ourselves. It just happens. So the question is, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to respond? And then lastly, persecution. Direct suffering that we experience as a result of taking a stand for our faith. We stand as a Christian on certain convictions and values and sometimes that does cost us something, even here in America. Sometimes it even costs us something in our own church when we take a stand for convictions and we have those in the body of Christ who name the name of Christ who don't want to be ruffled, who want to be comfortable, who want to fit in, and the heaviest persecution comes from our own body of believers. Uh, and that's tough. That's hard. But so there's persecution. There's consequences. There's troubles that come upon us. And there's persecution. And so looking at this word, trials here, that talks about trials and temptation. You know, it's interesting, this word, and I like how it's translated. But, you know, trials, the word trials has become a pretty... Uh, common staple in the Christianese language, hasn't it? We all kind of throw that word around, trials, tribulation. But I found even for myself, when you use a word enough, you, don't, you forget to think about what it actually means. 
And uh, as you may have noticed in the past couple of weeks, I like to look at words and what they mean because it matters. It matters and it's, it's trying to say something here. And there's a reason that this word is translated the way it is as both trials and, and temptation in various passages throughout the New Testament. And it's not simply translated trouble because it's not talking about trouble. It's talking about trials. Well, what's the difference? Well, what is a trial? Well, we know if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, it says the action or process of trying or putting to proof. And looking here in the original Greek as this was written, that is the literal meaning of the Greek word, parasmos. And it says, putting to proof by experience, discipline or provocation, by implication, adversity, temptation, or to try and test. So it isn't just a trouble. It isn't just a problem. It has a purpose. By its very definition, it has a purpose. You know, in the legal sense, we all know what a trial is, and it's not something we want to participate in. But what is the purpose of a trial? It's to find out the, and determine the truth, right? It's to prove the case, whether someone's guilty or innocent. It's to, it has a purpose, doesn't it? It is not just arbitrary. Technical definition, the formal examination before a competent court or form of justice of the matter and issue in civil or criminal cause in order to determine such the issue. And then lastly, in the way we use it, a test of faith or patience, or stamina through subjection to suffering or temptation. And, you know, that is what is being meant here. This isn't just talking about troubles in a superficial sense. We have to understand, by the very definition of these things, they're meant to work something in us. They're meant to produce something in us. And again, uh, it's not about whether or not trouble or trials will come. It's about how we respond to it when it does come. Because it will come in various degrees. So verse 7, reading on, it says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, that is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're told here a purpose. Quite clearly, to test the genuineness of our faith, to test the proof of our faith or reveal the proof of our faith. So, in other words, it's supposed to bring to surface the evidence of what we truly believe, of who we trust in. So, first of all, is there even any proof? You know, when the, when the trials come, is there evidence at all? Is it obvious that we respond differently than the rest of the world? But secondly, how is it looking? Is it, am I growing? Is it strong? Is it weak? Am I struggling? Or is this an area that God's really worked greatly in my life? The degree of faith is also indicated here. You know, um, we've read some a recent story about a shooting at the Emmanuel Baptist Church in South Carolina. I'm sure many of you heard about that. A tragic situation where nine people lost their lives. And, uh, uh, you know, when we read those things, it is, it really hits home. You know, we think of our church body here and we go, well, what if that happened here? Uh, the pastor was killed along with eight others. And the world was watching. The world was watching. It was on the news. It was all around. And what was uh, so moving and, and so inspiring was the way they responded. Honestly, they passed the test. And if you read uh, the stories of how the families responded, uh, it brought you to tears because they 
came through the fire and their, the gold was shown and the, and the proof of who they were was shown and they spoke words of forgiveness. They spoke words of compassion, not anger, not bitterness, not screaming at God and asking why. They, they echoed Jesus' words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and they spoke so loudly to a world that is looking. I thought it was such an amazing testimony to who we truly are as Christians. They did not shout and scream at God. They did not uh, get angry and want to persecute and prosecute anyone within the square mile. They said, you know what? Our God's bigger. Our God's greater. And you know what? They just beat us to heaven. Uh, we're, forget- we're forgiven. And so how can we do anything less than forgive? Uh, an incredible testimony. But that is what is supposed to happen. When, the, when a watching world sees how we endure the fire, then people go, wow, there's something to that. Maybe it is real. And it is. But that's how our testimony and our witness is put on the stand. You know, I had a good friend uh, in Bible college. I went to Bible college down in Marietta uh, for a year and a half back in uh, 2000, 2001. And then I went to Australia for three months. Uh, a friend of mine that I met down there from Wisconsin, as he pronounced it, Wisconsin. His name was John Stoffel. Cool guy. You know, and I remember, one of the things I remember about John is he always very proudly wore uh, his shirt <clears throat> that had the state bird of Wisconsin on it. It was a mosquito. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he was a funny guy. And he always called me monkey. And he always wanted to wrestle. And he was just a lot of fun to be around. But, you know, he had a very genuine and simple faith. You know, he was, uh, he was my age. <clears throat> But, you know, back in May of this year, uh, I I read something very tragic. Um, He was out walking with his family, and uh, some random person came up to them and uh, shot him. Shot him, shot his oldest daughter, 11 years old. Uh, Killed him and his daughter. His wife and two other children managed to escape. Um, Terrible. Uh, very heartbreaking. He was 33. And he uh, served in the children's ministry at his church. Hmm. But, uh, you know, uh, there was a uh, group of some of the people they were with walking with John and his wife, Aaron, uh, said that uh, you know, some of his last words were that he was encouraging his family to forgive. And uh, amazing. But his family is doing that. His, his, his personal family, his church family is doing that. And they too are enduring the trial well and are an incredible testimony to the love of God and the power of God and the hope of God and the peace of God. But you know what? It's things like that that cause us to ask why sometimes. We kind of go, well, why would God allow this? You know, and, and we can't answer that question. But we know God uses it. We know God does great and mighty things. And if we truly trust Him and believe in Him, it will show. But God used John's life and his death in great and mighty ways and continues to use it. But these trials have a purpose. And I'm gonna, I want to give you some scripture, something to hold on to, something to be encouraged by in the purpose of these trials. 
First of all, they draw us closer to God and cause us to depend on Him more. 2 Corinthians 12.9 If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians, we're going to read a few things in there. But 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, Paul, um, he talked about how he had this thorn in the flesh. He had this trial, this trouble that just did not go away. He says three times he sought the Lord to take it from him. And God didn't take it. God didn't take it. But God used it to keep him humble and to keep him close to him and had a very profound purpose in his life. And it got Paul to the place where he even rejoiced in his own weaknesses knowing that God was all the more glorified and he was all the more effective in reaching lost souls for the kingdom of God because God's grace was sufficient. His strength was made perfect in his weakness. And sometimes when we're too strong and we're too dependent on ourselves, God is drowned out. We constantly are saying, oh, I got this. Don't worry, I got this, God. I got this one handled. So we forget. And God has to remind us we actually aren't in control. We actually don't got it. We need him. And then if we respond in such a way that shows His glory in our lives, people do see. And you know what? People are, glorify God. People come to the Lord. People are saved. People, God uses it in a mighty way. But God uses these trials and troubles to draw us close to Him and cause us to depend on Him. As it says in Second Corinthians, also to be a witness to the world, to the glory of God's character and nature and who He is. You know, Jesus talks to us and, and, and tells us about this um, in Luke chapter 6, verse 32. Luke chapter 6, verse 32. Peter's talking, or not Peter, I'm sorry, uh, Jesus is talking and he's exhorting his disciples and those who are listening to be different than the world, to respond differently when adversity comes. And he said, but if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive something back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. So we have to be different. We have to respond different. When, when adversity comes, when trouble comes, we have to have a whole different mindset in the midst of those things. We have to think differently. And we do. As God's Spirit renews us, He kind of fixes those things. He makes those adjustments. But one of the purposes of trouble and trial is to reflect the character of God and be a witness to the world. Um, you know, I knew someone growing up, a good friend of our family, her name was Barb Crandall. Some of you may have known her who lived in Twin Peaks. And I watched, you know, as I was younger, I got to watch this in action. Uh, you know, she was someone who was very athletic, loved sports, and she got in a car accident. A very debilitating injury resulted where uh, she was in chronic, terrible pain for years and years and years. Um, and she wasn't able to play sports anymore. She loved softball. She loved baseball. I remember... Uh, Matter of fact, the only baseball game I can ever remember going to, a Dodgers game, was one she took me to. And it was a lot of fun. Um, and she had an incredible heart. And I remember praying for her daily for years uh, that God would heal her. And, uh, you know, God didn't. He chose not to. 
And I didn't understand that, but one thing I did see loud and clear was God's glory, God's character and nature revealed in her. Because she was one of the most joyful people I ever knew. I mean, she was robbed of this goal and this dream she had, uh, humanly speaking. But you know what? It didn't shake her. She uh, brought so many people to Christ and encouraged so many people in their faith because she was not moved by it, because she had joy in the midst of it, because she continued to love God and glorify Him. And that, that spoke a lot to me. It spoke a lot to me. She was an incredible example. She was kind of like Paul with that thorn, except she was in terrible chronic pain. And uh, I've never seen anyone endure something like that so gracefully. But she did. And it's by God's grace and by God's power. And, it was, and God used her in, in incredible ways. Incredible ways. Um, he also uses trials to keep us humble and give us compassion so that we can also share the compassion of God with others. And for, uh, 2 Corinthians 1 is, an, is just an incredible and an encouraging go-to passage. It's something I encourage you to jot down and, and just kind of keep for future reference. 2 Corinthians 1 talks about a very valuable purpose of, of trouble and trial in our lives. It says, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And so by experiencing these things firsthand, by being able to say, yes, I've been there, and God got me through it, God worked in this way, there's something very real about that. We can look someone in the eye and, and be very honest and be very real about how God's love is, is very tangible in our lives, how he has worked, how he has saw us through. But yet it keeps us humble. It keeps us in that place where we don't look at others going through trials and difficulty. And we can be very judgmental, can't we? We can look at them and how they're responding and think maybe we would do better. Or, or, or we can very easily judge uh, how they're acting or, how they're, or just the things on the surface and even have no idea what's going on below it. But if we've walked in those shoes, if we've been in that place where we don't know, what, we don't know how to get out of bed in the morning and we see someone else in that spot, we can, we, can, we can spot it, we can recognize it, and we can reach out with compassion, and we can share God's love and His comfort because we've received it. And that's the only way we can receive it. I wish there was an easier way. I wish I had better news for you. <laughs> but that's how we receive it. That's how God shares it with us. And then we pass it on. And it started with Christ. These, and, and all throughout this we see that we're just partaking in the sufferings of Christ himself. He came to suffer on our behalf. He came as that high priest who is well acquainted with grief and sorrow. He's been there as well. And we're now walking in his shoes. But these tests, they go on further to refine us. Um, Romans 5, 3 through 4 talks about trials and tribulations and he says not only that but we also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance perseverance character and character hope and James 1 is a verse we're familiar with it talks about how uh, you know it's one of those passages we don't like to read because it talks about counting it all joy and you, you read that and you go, you got to be kidding me count it all joy but why it's because you're not looking at the trial you're looking at what the trial produces you're looking at what it does and it says it, has, it produces patience. 
and let it have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, uh, it, when we're tested, when we're tried, sometimes we fail that test the first time, don't we? Sometimes we don't pass it. We, don't, we aren't there yet. But then God uses it. We learn from it. And then the next time it comes around, we do pass the test. We do pass the trial. We've grown. We've gotten better. You know, and it, it could be in any number of things. It could be a small thing. It could be a real small thing. You ever hit your finger with a hammer? That kind of shows your vocabulary a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> Test your heart a little bit. You know, um, earlier this summer, I was putting up a big tarp uh, at the chapel at the camp to block out all the light for this special light show they were going to do in there. And we had this new fangled staple gun that was oddly shaped and, quite frankly, looked upside down. So I grabbed it what I thought was right side up, went to staple said tarp into said building, and managed to run a staple straight into my palm. And I had someone there with me, and they got to witness the test of my character. (laughs) And I'm proud to say I passed the test. I passed that one. I passed that one. I did not faint and fall off the lift. And I uh, did not say anything that I would regret. Thankfully, I just kind of looked at it and went, wow, that's unfortunate. (laughs) I yanked it out and kind of kept going. Spirit was working at that particular moment in time. (laughs) But those little things, they test what's in our hearts. They do, don't they? And uh, all those things should cause us to take a second look at what's, what's, what are we feeding our hearts and minds with. And we're going to read a little more about that because that's ultimately what comes out. Now, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, there's another story I read about a Texas farmer who was touring in England. He happened to meet an English farmer and asked him, well, you know, what size farm do you have? And the Englishman proudly announced, I have 35 acres. I'd like to have 35 acres, just saying. Side note. Anyway, 35 acres, the Texan scoffed. Well, I can get in my truck at 8 a.m. and start driving, and at noon, I am still on my farm. I can eat lunch and then start driving again, and at 5 p.m., I'm still on my farm. Ah, yes, the Englishman nodded in understanding. I've had a truck like that before, too. (laughs) But we, we have trials. You know, vehicles break down. Man, it's tough. We go through these things and they test us. But if we let it have its perfect work, we do grow stronger, don't we? We do grow stronger and our light shines a little brighter. In John 16:33, Jesus encourages us through these things. I have told you these things, not so we'd be discouraged, not so we'd get bummed out and depressed. And we're talking about this this morning, not because I want to send you out of here all just down in the dumps going, man, life just stinks. <laughs> That's not the point. It's not the point. And if I'm doing that, I'm not, not, doing the, I'm not accomplishing the objective here. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in Romans 8, Paul said, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's perspective. People of God, it's perspective. It is, are we looking to, as we talked about, the things of this world to be our stability, be our joy? Are we looking to Christ? Are we looking 
to the hope and the glory that we have that's awaiting us. In Christ we have peace, and in him we have overcome anything that this world can throw at us. And as it says here in our passage this morning, may it be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when he comes again, you know, there is going to be that Bema Seat judgment. And some of you may have heard about that. There is two judgments at the end. There's the judgment of the sheep and the goats. There's those who will be saved and enter into eternal rest with Christ and those who will not. But then there's also the judgment where the works that we've done, the things for God's kingdom or not, will be tested and judged. And that's not about salvation, but that's about those crowns that we hear about. It's about the eternal rewards that we've been storing up or failing to store up. And some of us, our life is going to go up in a puff of smoke. There might be one little shiny rock there. And others are going to have storehouses and storehouses. And they'll probably be those people you never heard of, those people that quietly go about their business and serve the Lord in all that they do and say. It's not the guy in the spotlight. It's not the guy you see and would expect. And that's this praise and honor and glory at the revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ that he's talking about here in First Peter. That's what we're looking to. That's what we're working towards. That's our objective. And reading on in verse 8, it says, Whom, having not seen... You love. So Peter's talking about the church there. Many of those young believers, they did not walk with Jesus. They did not see Jesus. They didn't get to experience his teaching and see his miracles. But he says, despite that, whom having not seen, you love. And though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here Peter Peter is also echoing the words of Christ. If you remember... uh, that little experience with Thomas recorded in John chapter 20, where Thomas said, unless I see, unless I touch, I'm not going to believe. But what did Jesus say when Thomas did get to see and touch? He said, yes, now you believe, but blessed are those who don't see and believe. And you know what? That's all of us too, isn't it? That includes us. We are those people who haven't gotten to see, and yet we believe. And Jesus calls us blessed And we do rejoice with this inexpressible joy. And he says, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that is the end result. That's the core message of the gospel. And we've got to keep keep the main thing the main thing. Faith is not about good things here. It's not about a good life. It's not about, uh, you know, we we come to Christ not because we're looking for material blessings and material wealth and healthy, wealthy wives and all of that stuff that unfortunately we sometimes hear preached from a pulpit. That's not what the gospel message is. It's about being saved from eternal damnation. It's about the judgment to come. It's about the fact that we are all sinners and we have a gift. And we receive that gift and we're set free. And the good life that we have in Christ, the life more abundantly that Jesus talked about was not a material abundant life. And yes, the Father does delight to give good gifts to His children, doesn't He? It's not, it's not that there's something evil and inherently wrong with having things, material blessings. No, but it's, it's what you do with them. Are they your idol? Are they your object? Are they your pursuit? You know, God uses rich people and poor people in great and mighty ways. What do you do with those resources? Are you a good steward of those resources? But the end 
result of our faith is the salvation of our souls. That is the goal, that is the purpose, and that's what we're looking to, is that final judgment day when we can hear those words enter in, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we're looking to. That's the purpose and result of our faith. So reading on in First Peter, we're going to see if we can get a little farther today. You guys hanging in there? You good? All right. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Let's read a little further. It says, Of this salvation, the salvation that's the result of our faith, this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You know, the Holy Spirit was at work well before Christ came, of course. He was preparing the way. And we see these prophecies throughout the Old Testament of God's coming. You know, and many of those prophets hoped to see their Messiah come, but didn't. And it says in here how they ultimately were ministering to those who would see, and they were preparing the way for those that would come, those that would come after. You know, it's estimated, reading through Scripture, depending on how you take certain passages, there's over 350 prophecies that have been fulfilled by Jesus directly himself. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and many thousands of manuscripts and documents, we know for a fact we can date to well before Christ's time on earth, these prophecies spelled out in the exact same as in your Bible and your lap today. They haven't changed. And that's one of the things that makes God's word so miraculous and so amazing and why we know it is the inspired word of God. But these prophets talked of this time they talked of when Christ would come and the time to follow. They even talked of the second coming. And they yearned for their Messiah. And in verse 12 he says, To them it was revealed not for themselves, but to us who were, they were ministering to, the things which now have been reported to you, the things uh, through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Just saying these prophets... They came to realize that it wasn't for them. Their message wasn't for them. It was for the next generation. It was for those to come. And the Holy Spirit was revealing that. And then now he's speaking to the church saying, this gospel revealed to you by the Holy Spirit himself, you're the ones that get the blessing of experiencing it and seeing it. You know, we too can get very anxious. We have something we're looking forward to as well, don't we? We're looking forward to the second coming. We know what's happening, just as surely as the prophets of the Old Testament knew their Messiah was coming. We know our Savior's coming, don't we? He is coming. And it might be today, but it might not be for many years. We just don't know. And as Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. We can't get too caught up in that. But we've been given instructions as to how to carry on, haven't we? And just as the prophets realized, as it's spelled out here, Prophets realized that they needed to not focus so much on what they were going to see and get, but on preparing the future generation, on continuing to be faithful to speak the word that God had given to them. We need to have the same focus, don't we? And I think in many ways as a church, we're failing that focus. You know, we can get so caught up in going, well, you know, Christ is coming soon anyway. This world's going to burn. It's all going up in smoke. It ain't going to last. And we forget, well, you know what? Our children are going to grow up in this world and we need to equip them to be a light and to carry on the heritage. We need to prepare the next generation. 
It's been given to us to do so. And we don't know when he's coming. I hope it's today. I'm good with that. But it may not be. So we have to be faithful stewards. We have to be like these prophets that are talked about where we are preparing that next generation, where we are passing on the heritage for them to endure trials well, for them to live this life and walk in these shoes. Isaiah 53 is a passage I think many of us are familiar with, one of the very well-known prophecies about Jesus. And it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that we should see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Doesn't that sound familiar? We're just reading about, about this in Peter. He relates to our grief. He's been there. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And this is what it's talking about when we talk about being a partaker of Christ's suffering. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One of the many incredible prophecies about Christ and what he would come to do and how our faith would be worked out and how the plan of salvation that was set up before the beginning of time would be unfolded, this mystery of the gospel that is spoken of. Pretty amazing. Paul comments on this mystery of the gospel and its specific intent for mankind in Ephesians 3. He says, To me, who am less than the least of the saints, his grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has, hidden, was, has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church, made be known, I'm sorry, by the church, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Paul here echoes the same thing Peter is talking about. It's interesting that even the angels themselves are watching the plan of God unfold with great expectation. And they even don't have the inside scoop. They don't even really understand and know. And you know what? It's not even really for them. We are that special, that blessed, that unique. God made us to have this fellowship with him that even the angels don't really get to experience. And it's a mystery to them. And they are looking to us to kind of explain it and to live it out and to see it unfold. And so moving on and wrapping up here, we're going to read a few more verses and see if we can get through. Peter goes on after talking a bit about trials and these things. He now issues a challenge. He issues a challenge to us. And starting picking up where we left off in verse 13, back in 1 Peter 1. He says, Therefore, because of all these things that we've just talked about, because of all that we have in Christ. As a result, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So gird up the loins of your mind. That isn't a term we use much these days, is it? Gird up your loins. I haven't had anyone challenge me that way recently. 
What, what does that mean? What is that talking about? Well, for those of you who have studied the Bible or have been in this church any length of time, chances are you've heard it talked about. You know, and in that day and time, uh, that was the term of being prepared. He was, was talking about basically put your belt on, get your skirt up and out of the way, get ready to run, get ready, be ready for the battle, be ready, be prepared, be ready for action. In other words, you're not lounging around. You're ready to move. You know, most people who have known me for any length of time, especially when I was uh, the youth pastor, I always gave the kids a really hard time because they would always come to youth group wearing sandals and flip-flops. And I'd inevitably have them playing some capture-the-flag wrestling sumo game or something. You know, and, they're, and, they're, and of course, they're not prepared. I'm going, what is... This isn't the beach. We're not here to lounge around. Come on, guys. And you know, I'd always give them a hard time about that. And I, I'm a big believer in wearing shoes because you never know when you need to climb a tree. I mean, it just it happens. It happens. And you've got to be prepared. But we're, this is what is being said here. Gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, you need to be mentally prepared, mentally equipped, and be prepared for the battle. Be prepared for the work that God has given you to do. Don't be so absorbed mentally in the cares and concerns of this world that there's no brain space for the things of God. Things start in your mind, don't they? Go from your mind to your hands. In the NASB version, it says, prepare your minds for action, is the way they interpret that. That is more of a paraphrased version meant to really speak in our modern language. Prepare your minds for action. In other words, this isn't just nice theory. This isn't just something we talk about uh, to feel good. Prepare your minds for action. This is going to play out in your life one way or another. Are you ready for it? Here it comes. How do we do this? 2 Corinthians 10. For, the, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds. Think Ephesians 6. Armor of God putting that on and being prepared. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. This is what it means to gird up the loins of your mind, to be prepared, prepare your mind for, your, for action. Taking every thought captive. Our minds can run wild, can't they? They can go down some pretty crazy rabbit trails sometimes. And you, you can always tell when someone spent a little too much time in their own head. You know, they're just a little out there. And you know what? God's Word has something to say about that too, doesn't it? How easily we deceive ourselves. We spend a little too much time outside of God's truth and His, His Word, uh, not preparing ourselves properly. You know, Philippians 4.8 talks about it. We know. It says, finally, brother, in the things that are true, noble, right, lovely, pure. That's what we're supposed to be putting in there. It's a tall order. As Christians, we're supposed to be clearly pursuing something and he's going on here in 1 Peter to tell us what that is. But we have to ask ourselves, you know, in our practical lives, I think as Christians in our practical lives, sometimes we get this impression like there's a lot more gray than there really is. And this is a tough thing to talk about. Some of you might be uncomfortable. Some of you might not like me after I get done talking about this. But... Being liked is not necessarily my goal. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know what? 
Sometimes we get this sort of impression in talking to fellow Christians that God's Word is neutral on a lot of things. And I've got to be honest with you, God's Word is not very neutral. Matter of fact, God's Word is pretty darn divisive, it's pretty darn convicting, and is meant to pierce to the soul of the issue, to the heart of the matter. It is not a neutral document on anything in life. In First Peter, or I'm sorry, in Second Peter 2, Peter talks about how we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. You know, does the Word of God deal with what books or articles we should read? Does it deal with the kind of music we should listen to? The movies we should watch? The TV shows we should watch? The places we should go? The things we should say? Does the Word of God deal with that? Or is that just purely up to my own personal conviction? You know what? The Word of God's pretty clear. And if you want a list of the criteria, read Philippians 4.8 again and again. And it's a tough order. You know, what? you know what it means? It means we have to give up some things. It means we have to be willing to stand for something. It means it's uncomfortable. It means that even our fellow Christians will make fun of us sometimes. Are you willing to do it? Are you, are you willing to do it? The Bible is clear on the fact that our minds are powerful and what we feed our minds affects us greatly. Reading that verse in Second Peter... Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And we know that all scripture is given by God, for, by the inspiration of God, for instruction, reproof, correction, training, right? We have been given everything we need, every decision in life we have to make. You know, Titus has a great verse about this. It says in Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their mind and their conscience is defiled. And what's the result of that? Well, let's read on. It says, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. He's exhorting Christians here. Disqualified for every good work because of what you're feeding your mind because of what's coming out as a result of what you fed your mind. This is a tough challenge here. And we're told here in 1 Peter to be sober, which obviously just simply means don't be under the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit. Be clear-headed. Be clear-minded. And I don't, I don't want to get tunnel vision here. Many times we read be sober and we think, okay, well, I don't struggle with alcohol and drugs, so I'm good. I'm in the clear. You know, and that may be some of you. Alcohol and drugs might be something that you struggle with. And I know many people do, and that's something that God can, is here to deliver you from. That you may think clearly, and God's Spirit can do it, and I've seen it done. But you know what? He's not just talking about those things, is He? There are other things that can rob our minds, distract our minds, occupy our minds. What do you think about during the day? What, what movies, what sports, what news articles... Video games, food, the latest gossip. Be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. We get addicted to all kinds of things. We get distracted and occupied by all kinds of things. Unbecoming of a Christian. This is challenging stuff. This is hard stuff. But God's word is not wishy-washy about it. 
We've got to take it for what it is. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just, just trying to tell you what it says. It says, Peter goes on to say as we wrap this up, as obedient children, verse 14, First Peter 1.14, please join me there. Sorry we're running a little late today, but I want to wrap this up. 1.14 says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Wow. There's a tough one. Doesn't keep reading, it just gets harder and harder. (laughs) Man, he's not giving us any wiggle room here. He says, as obedient children, remember how we talked about that inheritance, how we're reborn, how we're in a new family now? We need to resemble our father. We should be walking and representing our family well. It says, walking, you formerly walked in ignorance. You had this lack of knowledge, and we've read several verses now that talk about the knowledge of God. We know in VBS, some of the kids learned about how the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. That's where knowledge starts. Be holy as I am holy. He's quoting from Leviticus. In Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19, chapter 20, um, they all talk about this where God is exhorting the Israelites, here's the standard. Guess what? It's perfection. It's holiness. That is not necessarily what we can achieve, is it? At least not this side of eternity, but that is the goal. That is the aim. That is the pursuit. And Hebrews 12:14 exhorts us saying, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So is it obvious? I have to ask you. I have to ask me. Is it obvious what I'm pursuing in my life? Does it look like I pursue holiness? When people, if, a cha- if another Christian challenges me to examine what I'm doing or what I'm saying, am I defensive? Am I, do I pull out the whole don't judge me card? Or do I go, thank you. I'm trying to be more like Christ. And I'll, uh, I'll give that some prayer and thought. Thank you for encouraging me in that. How do we respond? Heart check. Big heart check. If we're pursuing holiness, we should welcome encouragement. We should welcome rebuke. Proverbs says a wise man receives correction, receives instruction. And wisdom starts in the Lord. So in conclusion, let's be real here. You know, we've talked about some really tough things. You know, we're all flawed. We all fail. We have our shortcomings. So we need to be patient with each other. We need to be patient and trust God. It's not easy to rejoice in trials, is it? It's not easy to live up to these standards we're talking about. It's not easy to be one of the few that says, well, I, you know, I, don't, I don't watch those things. Or I don't listen to those things. Or I don't go to those places. You know, it's not easy sometimes when our faith has to put on walking shoes and it has to actually show up in our life and we have to make those decisions with mean, you know, maybe I don't get to enjoy that product or buy that thing or do that, do that thing that I might enjoy or like or want. But you know what? It's not honoring to the Lord. And at some point we have to ask ourselves, do I, what do I stand for? Do I have conviction? You know, for, for me personally, something that God brought out and made obvious to me 
And I want to try and wrap this up as quickly as I can. <laughs> Trying. Hang in there. But you know what? I know this isn't going to make me popular. But I'm going to say it. You know what? God brought to our attention, our family's attention, Starbucks a while back. And I know some of you love your Starbucks. I know a lot of people who do. But you know what? When a company blatantly and flagrantly promotes ungodliness and things contrary to the word of God, when they, the owner of that company, the leaders of that company, when asked if they're concerned about Christians' response, say, eh, they'll buy it anyway. How are we going to respond? You know, and I'm not saying we go out there and we research every company we buy products from to sort of do the sin-sniffing thing and try and avoid any possible purchase or use of our dollars that would not be glorifying to God. Obviously, that's not possible. And God has something to say about that. And I want to touch on that in ending in a proper perspective and balance. But let's be real here. You know, when a company publicly and blatantly promotes sexual perversity and tries to undermine marriage as God designed it in our country, what are we doing giving them our dollars? What are we doing? That's a tough decision to make sometimes. And that's a frappuccino. I mean, come on. But you know what? You can make them at home. There's other companies. There's other places to get your coffee fix. But this is the real world. This is real here. How are we going to respond to stuff like this? When it's presented to us, what are you going to do? Are you going to kind of just keep on going? Or are you going to stand for something? And there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And so I want to end with Scripture in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 8. And I encourage you to read both of those chapters. Jot them down. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10 gives us some good balance to how to deal with this issue. I'm going to read through it and then we'll wrap up. And it says, All things are lawful for me. 1 Corinthians 10:23. All things are lawful for me, for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one... Another's well-being. Eat whatever is sold to you in the meat market, asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. And in that day, idolatry, and this is a letter to the Corinthians. Remember context, hermeneutics. Understand what's going on here, what he's addressing. In the, in the church at Corinth, it was almost impossible to buy meat that hadn't been sacrificed to pagan idols. And they could get so caught up in this strict legalistic perspective, it was counterproductive to the gospel. And what he's trying to encourage them and exhort them in here is a balanced perspective on this. Listen, and this is just what I was talking about. Don't, we're not called to nitpick and, and sin sniff every little company and try and find a problem. That's not what I'm saying here. But do we have conviction? And when it's presented to us, how do we respond? And I think it's very well said here in Corinthians tw- chapter 10. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. It belongs to God. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you'd go... Eat whatever is said before you, asking no question, for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it, for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. And conscience I say not of your own, but of that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? But therefore, whether you eat or drink, in whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And give no offense, either to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And now concerning things offered to idols, 
in Corinthians 8.1, he says, We know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up and love edifies. So we can get a lot of perspective from these verses. And one thing I can tell you, what the world does not need is a lukewarm, or a room temperature, rather, complacent, casual, compromising Christian. The world doesn't need any more of those. We've got a lot of them. The world doesn't need a Christian that lacks conviction. The world also does not need a super judgmental, hyper-spiritual, sign-waving, sin-sniffing super-Christian that blows everyone out of the water and totally misrepresents the love of Christ. As we read in 1 Corinthians 8 where it says, knowledge puffs up but love edifies. Our goal is reaching people for the gospel. And so there is a way to live with conviction and live it in love. To do it in a godly way. To where people can look at us and go, you know, that is different. They have something real. It shows up in their life. And I may not agree with it, but man, they've got something I need. They've got something I want. So do we have conviction? doesn't show up. But do we do it in love? And do we do it with the proper goal in mind? That souls will be one, as Paul talks about in Corinthians. So we've got some tough things to chew on today. We got through it. Thank you for hanging in there. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that challenges and exhorts us to step up to the plate, to step up to the calling that you've put on our lives, to endure trials, Lord, to pursue holiness, some really hard things for us. And Lord, I pray that you would show us each how that works out practically in our lives. What does that mean? Where are we compromising? Where are we falling down? Where are we misrepresenting you? Lord, I pray that we would live with true passion and conviction, that our faith would be for real, that when tested, it would pass that test, that it would shine bright. Lord, we ask that you would grant us the strength and the grace to endure trials, uh, Lord, with, with your grace, Lord, nobly, in a way that would glorify you. Lord, help us to allow those trials and those troubles to have their work in our lives, that we would be more like you, that we would allow ourselves to be refined, that we would be humble before you. Lord, I pray that your word, as you promised, would go forth and accomplish the work for which you intended it. I thank you that you promised that your word never returns void. And so I pray for each heart here and each mind here that there would be a permanent effect that works out in our lives in a practical sense. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.